On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, a.k.a. Menas, and joining me for this week's edition of the show, have my old friend and editor at News Corp, James McSmith. How are you, Macca? Menas, I'm fantastic, and thank you once again for having me, mate. It's great to be here. And the other person joining me is Steve Wilson from the Digital Sports Department. How are you, Steve? I'm very well, Manners. Yeah, looking forward to uh, some robust dissection of the uh, England cricket team. Steve, yeah. Steve, like much of the rest of the English team, are you hungover? Are you getting drunk? Are you, have you Should been I drunk? My head? <laughs> well, that's <laughs> the thing. Wear yeah, a raincoat. <laughs> where does it begin and where does it end? Yeah, drunk, hungover, somewhere in between. You know what we're like. Um, I really like our boss at News Corp because I wasn't sure at the beginning why he got a POM to blog the whole Ashes series. But now I've realised it was a great plan by our boss to make you suffer through the summer. You have to watch every ball on most of the test. How are you coping? I'm, I'm getting through it. No, I do I do have a foot in both camps. I've got an Australian wife and Australian daughter, so I do uh, uh, claim a little bit of I can go either way uh, when, when necessary. But, yeah, it's quite difficult to commentate on an England collapse. And, well, but, but, but I have had plenty of well, practice well, by now. I say, so, you know, <laughs> I go the other way as well. I've got an English wife, but I've never once thought about going for England. So I think that's the difference between uh, Aussies and Pirates. I reckon he, he's only considering going this way because it's 2-0 down. It's looking at 5 No, That's why he's got a foot in this camp. I, 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 get, I get paid by Australians, so that, <laughs> that's why I persevere with it. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the blogs the rest of the summer. Enjoy. All right, so we've got a big show this week. Macca, Steve and I are going to preview the Wacker Test. We're going to go through all the cricket headlines. And I've got two feature interviews, one with former Australian fast bowler Damien Fleming and the other with one of the most respected cricket journalists and commentators in the country, Tim Lane. So that's all to come. But let's get into the preview of the Wacker Test. Mitchell Johnson said, pretty much today, that this English team is worse than the team that was here in 2013. I mean, is it looking worse than the team that was here in 2013, Macca? Not yet. Not yet, mate. I don't think. I mean, I'm coming here a little bit sheepish today because I said that I think last time with Steve, I gave him was trying to give him some confidence. And and I do think that those two tests so far, we, they could have gone England's way, maybe if they'd shown a bit more resolve, but I really think things are starting to crumble. And, you know, I mean, that team really hit rock bottom last time they're out here in England, and it'd be an incredible feat to go lower than that. But they're certainly starting to do their best, aren't they? I think the thing with on the field for this English team, what's happening is pretty much what we expected to happen. You know, we went we went to Brisbane and uh, we England don't win there. Expected a bit more out of the conditions in Adelaide, and you know, Anderson and, and Broad at times did show that they were capable of doing it. And Australia showed that under lights with the ball hooping around, they don't have a, a, a concrete set batting order. But the Australians have produced what they were going to produce. They got the, the quick bowlers and Nathan Lyon, who's just in the form of his life, and. Uh, a top order for England that's looked shaky before we came has been exposed. Yeah, it's going from one calamity to the other, though, for this tourist. So in the since the last podcast, and geez, I'm loving this, Ben Duckett's been pretty much uh, tour over for him and he for tipping a beer on James Anderson's head. Now, it's amazing. Every Aussie has probably wanted to do this to James Anderson <laughs> for 10 years, but it's someone in his own touring party that did it. And I just think I really feel sorry for Trevor Bayliss because usually when – a group like this starts to fall apart, the coach becomes the victim. And I, I fear that he's going to cop it from this tour. And I don't know how long he'll stay in the job as English coach because if you can't control your players, then your position becomes untenable. Well, it's an interesting uh, point with Bayless because pre this tour, one of the, if you speak to anyone in and around the camp, what they speak of his sort of great attribute, the thing that he's good at is, is creating this relaxed sort of convivial atmosphere within the team that then allows players to come and produce their best on the pitch but he's he's 
let them off the leash and, and treated them like adults and they've gone and behaved like sort of idiot children. Um, so you could see how exasperated he was in both times he's had to front the media, I mean, particularly the last one. You know, and he, he said it explicitly himself, they're just behaving like idiots and they are. It's, just, it's the rank stupidity of it. If you look at what Duckett's done, if you even look at what Bairstow did, bizarre as they are or odd as they are, they're not terrible issues in and of themselves but everything is happening under the shadow of the ben stokes incident so because of what happened there which was a serious you know we all saw the video this sort of terrible violence that was there because of that they should have been more acutely aware that every little thing they're going to do can be misinterpreted or can be exaggerated and they just haven't learned that and if, how many times are they going to do it before they do learn it and and bayless did just look like an exasperated parent who's like i've told them what to do what what, what more can i do now now the english have tried to use sledging as a distraction from the their behavior off the field and they've thrown it back at australia saying that we're crossing the line on the field and maybe sledging too hard but they're giving our players more and more ammunition as every test goes on, aren't they, Macca? Well, men, as that's exactly it. They don't, they, the Australians don't have to look far for some material, do they? And you can imagine what they're going to throw at the uh, Poms when we, when we finally get to Perth. It's really pathetic, though. Whenever England starts to lose, they say that Australia's sledging too much. I mean, it's such a non-issue, isn't it? Yeah, it's, the sledging thing is nonsense. I mean, that's it's good paper talk. It's good sort of TV discussion about what's going on there. And, you know, they will claim minor victories that Bairstow sort of hold out when they've been giving him some chirp and Smith didn't produce in the second innings in Adelaide when, when Anderson and Broad were sort of going at him. But I think the actual impact of sledging, and particularly some of the stuff they've, they've sort of been saying in this one, is, is massively over overegged. It's one for the fans to sort of chat about in the bar, but it's bowling and batting that wins wins games not uh, how colourfully you can slag off your opponent. Well, it, it is great theatre. It does look fantastic, you know, when Smith and Anderson are, you know, sort of having a bit of a word to one another. That's great TV. But, man, as I mean, we, you know, we obviously grew up, we grew up playing cricket in this great country of ours, and that's just by the by, isn't it? I mean, you know, obviously there are lines that you can't cross, but everyone's always chirpy when you're out in the middle, and that's just part of, I think, not just cricket, but sport in this country. Well, I'm going to say something that might ruffle a few feathers, but I don't think grown men on the field should be really upset by something that another grown man says to you. You know, you're playing professional sport. If someone tries to unsettle you by saying something very personal or very edgy, well, if that unsettles you, they've won. You've just got to be man enough to get over it. And with regards to Johnny Bairstow... I had written previously, but it never went to air, that I thought it was risky of him to release his own book in the lead-up to the Ashes series. I think if I was an Aussie player, I'd be reading that book looking for ammunition as well. And if it was some sort of attempt to engender sympathy from the Australian public or the players, well, it hasn't really worked. And that's not to denigrate his story, but to release the book in the lead-up to an Ashes, I thought was gutsy, and it's, it's blown up in his face. Steve's looking very, yeah, very got, worried at this. <laughs> Gutsy or not? I mean, obviously, you know, it, it's a book. I would also say it's well worth reading. It's a, it's a fascinating and that's know, the heart, balance. Heart, bit of yeah, the yeah, heart, heartbreaking uh, at times. But I think, yeah, gutsy. It's just a, it's a publishing issue. The timing of it, isn't it? It's the, it's the one time in a four-year cycle or eighteen-month uh, cycle where he's going to be able to. I think he knew that it was leading into an Ashes, and this would get the most publicity, and he would sell the most. Yes, books. Yeah, the, publi- so the publishers know that's what it is. Yeah, but if you're an Aussie player, mm. I'd be diving into that book and seeing if there's stuff I could use. Why not? That'd be interesting. We should get them together and do a straw poll and ask how many of them have read that book cover to cover. I, 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 I'd <laughs> wager that it was a, a minority of uh, less than two. Yeah. Yeah, that's Steve, right. I think, I think you, you've missed your cue there. You could have actually you know, questioned how many Aussie players perhaps A, can read or B, read books, but there you go. Alright, so we move to the Wacker now for the third test of the Ashes series and it will be pretty much the final ever test that the Wacker. They haven't confirmed this. They're saying they might use it for some matches down the track, but realistically, this could probably be the final ever test there. The first player to test there in 1970. Australia have an amazing record there. They've played 43 tests, won 24 and lost only 11. And most of those losses were against the might of the West Indies when they had their fast bowlers. So it is a happy hunting ground and has been for the Aussies. I guess, do you two have any emotions around saying goodbye to the Wacker or are you just happy to see a new modern stadium? I say as, as an Englishman, I mean, part of me, the nostalgic sort of romantic 
part of me always uh, mourns the losing of these sort of great arenas that have you know evoke memories and dramas that we've 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 enjoyed and seen there but as an Englishman I'm quite happy to see the back of it because it just means uh, it's a place a graveyard for our, our chances and hopefully this new stadium uh, sanitized and and uh, corporate as it may be may be a bit more useful to us when we come here and play in uh, four years time well, man, as I honestly think, we've we've said goodbye to the Wacker several seasons ago, haven't we? I mean, it doesn't bounce like it used to. I don't it's think very it, docile. I mean, if you go back to the test against New Zealand, you know, a few seasons past, that was one of the most boring test matches you'd ever see Killed in this country. Johnson's career, yeah, and you know, and look at the numbers racked up there. So I think we've said goodbye to it, you know, quite a while ago. And I think. You know, I mean, I haven't been to the ground itself. I've driven around it when I've been in Perth, and it really is, you know, it's... It's out of date. Yeah, yeah. So, the time I mean, has come. I guess, man, is one of the things that, I, that I've been surprised by. They haven't, we haven't really talked about it. It hasn't been mentioned. I mean, the, the Perth government or the Perth authorities really missed a golden opportunity to crown that stadium with this test, didn't they? The new Perth Stadium or Optus Stadium. And they just, they fell behind in the schedule, and they've only missed it by about a month, which is a real stuff-up, really, isn't it? I mean... You know, like it's so Australia. Can you imagine we were building up to a, a, you know, the first day of this new stadium at the Ashes, sixty thousand people, but instead, I guess it will at least the way. Yeah, has imagine, a chance imagine to that. I, I just think they've missed it. You know, they're obviously going to have a one-day game in January, but it just—I think they've really, really missed a great chance there. You know, to. To like kick it off in front of sixty thousand and really, you're right, you're right though as well that the, the wacker that we're sort of saying farewell to is one that has a bouncy deck that sort of batsmen are terrified just walking out into it and you're right that hasn't been the case for for quite a while now. I mean, as I guess we you know you mentioned it there. I mean, you go back to the West Indies at the height you know height of their prime and I, 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 Ambrose, what did he get six for one or something? You know, just trying to forget. That was yeah, I mean, no, those are those were the days when it was just you know. That was that was the wacky of old, but it, well, look, we look forward now to the new stadium. But I wanted to ask you too. So the big debate in the Australian side is: should Mitch Marsh come in for Peter Hanscom? And you know, Mitch Marsh is bat at six. Sean Marsh should move up to five, and you would all of a sudden have that fifth bowling option that the selectors seem to be looking for. And Hanscom, who's played twelve tests, averaging forty-seven, gets axed. So I guess, Steve, do you think? Mitch Marsh come in, and I guess I'll give you my concern that if if Sean Marsh bats at five, Australia's tail, some would say, starts at six. The idea of bringing a second Marsh in for for this game is less about him uh, or his brother. It's more about the bowling attack. And they're looking ahead and thinking, we've got two games from you know the three quicks with no problems. Everyone worries that they're going to break down at any point, but they're looking fine. They're getting through a decent amount of overs. It's just a little bit of an insurance policy because they want that three to go all the way through to Sydney and just crown this what could well be a 4-0, 5-0 victory. Uh, And it's just a bit of insurance because it's going to be hot in Perth. You never know. Flat wicked, like we talked about. Exactly. That's a lot of sort of overs in the legs of those those three guys. So just by having that extra bowling option for this particular game, I think there's a sense to it. But it would be really, really harsh on Hanscom, like you say, because of the test uh, test average that he has. He hasn't done a lot wrong, but it just he looks so ugly when things are going wrong for him. So the perception is greater than perhaps his true failing but I, I I would be happy to see them as an Australian being Marsh in for this one you know insurance policy for the quicks and then flipping see how back, it goes yeah, yeah and, but maybe bring him back in for, for Melbourne and Sydney well, is two Marshes too too many though Macca <laughs> no, look I, 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 have we ever won a test with two <laughs> Marshes I just think you know are we getting a bit ahead of ourselves thinking about what might happen in the future in terms of these players breaking down or struggling with the load. But I think you're right, man. You know, if, if, if Sean Marsh comes in at five, that's, we're looking a bit exposed. There. Yeah. Exposed. Yeah. We One really of the are. We've had is Sean Marsh coming in at six is kind of that solid uh, player at six, but then Mitch Marsh. So he's played 21 tests. He's averaging under 22 with the bat. Um, he's taken 29 wickets, Mitch Marsh, so he's been handy with the ball, but it's his batting that's never really come to fruition at test level. But Darren Lehman said his batting form at the moment is exceptional, so I guess we should hang our hats on that. There is also this this thing that I think is happening with the selectors. Is I mean, We, perhaps even as guilty as, as the general public of when the three big calls were made for the first test uh, with Marsh and uh, uh, with Bancroft and Payne coming in, everyone was terrified about the consequence of that. And they've pretty much, all three of them have 
justified their place and justified the faith of the selectors. And I wonder if there's perhaps a little bit going on through their minds that they're thinking, right, it's like the, the gambler in the casino. Yeah, the gambler in the casino. Oh, you win, uh, you win one, you win another, you win a third. That's black, when, black, that, black. That, that's that's, on that that's for when sure. you should walk away. But <laughs> does anyone ever walk away? I'll just have one more win. We'll just get one Roll bit funky with this one, and maybe that's in their mind. I don't know. We'll stay. I don't know if you you know listen to but Mark wore on commentary on Triple M, and I thought he was really fantastic in the Adelaide but he you know didn't mind patting himself on the back more than a few times to say you know well everyone said how confused we've got this right so but you know they're, they're three out of three aren't they and I guess I want to ask you Steve like is Hanscom really or Menace as well is Hanscom really going as badly as you say is I mean I was seeing the test live I was surprised at how I don't know if ugly is the right word for his technique but it's it's unusual isn't it? I was surprised how unusual he looked and he didn't look steady look he hasn't had a big go in this Ashes series. I think he's had three mm. innings, so it's really hard to say he's had a bad Ashes when you've had three chances I mean, to I th- score I think runs. One of those but, was under lights as well. Yes, mm. but he does have a dodgy technique, and before this summer, I identified that this English bowling attack might be able to target Hanscom. I mean, I said in this podcast, they, they bowl at a lot of players like him in county cricket that get exactly. trapped on the crease, so he is a Candidate number one for LBW off James Anderson. So I think there is some merit if you would arrest him uh, and bring in Mitch Marsh. But it's a, it's a tough call. I mean, you're picking players for a few tests and then you're dumping them again. It's just a, a vicious cycle now. And you, who knows who's going to play the next test. I just think there's breeding a sort of insecurity now in the team. But maybe the players can deal with that as professional sportsmen, you know. Kawaja can, you know, if, if it is horses for cautious, Kawaja can just take that on the chin. It's not like it was 10 years ago when you're in the team for 50, 60, 70, 100 tests. Now, guys, we're running out of time, so I want to lock you down on your predictions now. Steve, will the Ashes be regained by Australia at the WACA? Uh, it pains me to say that, yes, it, it almost history suggests it. Everything we've seen in the first two tests suggests it. I don't know where England go to sort of find an extra gear or more resolve. There's no major changes they could they could make with the squad. They can tinker with where, you know, maybe bring Bairstow up and bring uh, folks in to wicketkeep and, and relieve Bairstow of the wicketkeep. It, little bits like that, but there's no. Is Duckett running the drinks at the Wacker? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's his, his punishment for it. Isn't <laughs> yeah. it? For the rest of the tour, he's going to be. No, not on my head, mate. <laughs> he could bring out the gloves for uh, Steve so Smith every second all over, over for England at the Wacker. Just, I don't see how they can make such a fundamental change that they can they can come back in this series and can sort of overwrite the the decades of history at the Wacker. So they, they're, they're uh, yeah, Australia going to win this Test match. I like it. Oh, you He's conceded the defeat. His face. <laughs> Listen, there's uh, just, just I have to, to be that honest. blog when we regain the ashes. It's going to be so fun, Macca. Yeah, I mean, is, I, you, I, you, I, I mean I've got to agree there. I can't think anything else but 3 0, 4 0, 5 0. But I think, as an Australian fan, I think I'm speaking for a lot of Australian fans, I'm just stunned at Alistair Cook. He, you know, it wasn't that long ago he was illogible. You know, we couldn't get him out. And now he's just. Is illogible a, a word? Well, it is, it is on this podcast. And he, but he's just a shadow of his former self. You, you can't defy gravity, though, can you? I mean, like, all good things come to an yeah. end. He's just he's running down, running down Very the clock. Very in the last few minutes. <laughs> yeah. I think the the worry for Australia, and we've lost a few times at the Wacker in recent years to India and South Africa, is if we get conditions that favour swing bowling. Again, if Anderson bowls those nice little out swingers, and the ball's carrying through. A lot of our batsmen, Australian batsmen, have the ability to nick off. So that's the only way I can see England coming into this series is if they get all the conditions right and they're able to knock us over for a cheap score. And if they pick Mitch Marsh at six, that is actually an option. If if the English bowlers get on a roll, then they could dismiss us for a low score. But like you two, I'm pretty confident it'll be the Aussies that win. Menace, are you upset that we're all predicting a Aussie win? Are you upset that the Ashes doesn't look to be... Competitive? Do I sound upset? <laughs> I, I sounded upset at all during this No, podcast? I just, you know. It's... All right. So we've got a big announcement. The Ashes video game winner has been drawn. So thank you so much to all those entries for the competition. Actually got a big, big response. I'm really sorry that I only had one game to give away, but it was to send in your favorite Steve or Ashes memory. So uh, the winner was Tom McCutcheon, and this is his entry. Hi, Menas. My favorite memory is the 100 at the SCG in 2003 of the last ball of day two. It typified his sheer determination. 
Cheers, Tom. Well, great entry. Very popular one, that last ball century uh, off Steve Waugh. And, Tom, send me your address, and I'll be sending you out the a PS4 version of the Ashes game. Great game. Lots of fun. That's what a great your, prize, man. That's your summer sorted. All right, we're going to take a break now, and then after the break, I have a feature interview with former Australian fast bowler Damien Fleming. So I'll be back in a moment with Flemo. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. Now I'm thrilled to have on the line former Australian fast bowler Damien Fleming. Hi Damien, welcome to the show. How are you? Yeah, thanks Andrew. Just getting ready for the uh, the third test match. It's been pretty exciting so far. Now, we met last year at the SCG, I think during one of the Big Bash games. I came up to you and I told you about my cricket podcast and how good it was. <laughs> and then a few weeks later, I see, or maybe a bit more than a few weeks, I see you've started your own podcast. Now, I guess my first question is, was I your inspiration? <laughs> of course you were. Um, but you took the name. I was going to go uh, Cricket Unfiltered, but... Uh, no, it was, um, yeah, I suppose it was about six months later. I was looking at probably more a general podcast because I started to ride my bike a lot because my uh, my knees are letting me down after all the fast bowling and, um, you know, doing a lot of riding. And, and I'm a bit of a heavy metal freak, but, you know, listening to Ozzy Osbourne and, and Metallica and Motley Crue and all that, you know, when you're riding can, um, I think, increase the uh, the adrenaline too much. So, started listening to a lot of podcasts and, and it sort of come around to that, you know, what, why don't I do one myself? It was going to be, yeah, pretty general entertainment, bit of sport. And then when it come down to it, I thought, oh, well, it's getting close. I better do something and thought, let's do a cricket one. And my old teammate, Bradley Hodge, who's a unique character, you know, fantastic player. He's still playing club cricket for East Sandringham. So I thought we could have a bit of fun with uh, talking about local cricket and, and obviously Hodgie's not, not knowledge at international level and also he thinks a little bit outside the square, Andrew, which I think's always <laughs> good and it, it, it's, it's good fun. I mean, you're doing it, I'm doing it. it. It's funny, you know, you might have been doing it for a couple of years and thought there, there wasn't too many in the market. There's about a hundred of them now. Yeah, there's lots of cricket podcasts. It's a bit annoying, though, because you, you're a former Test player. You took a hat-trick on debut. You've won a World Cup. You're on TV for the Big Bash. You're on radio for the Tests. I mean, wasn't that enough for you? <laughs> oh, I'm really lucky, very lucky. You know, when I left school at 18, got my HSC results for the kids out there. That's year 12 results back in the late 80s. And a week later, I'm rooming with Mervyn Hughes, who was probably the most famous Aussie sportsman at that stage, he just got his 13 wickets and against the West Indies and got a hat-trick. And to think, you know, 30 years later, I'm still working in the game that I love. Very fortunate. And to have a bit of variety, like you said, to be able to do TV and radio and then also, you know, work with a lot of my ex-teammates. So, you know, I wouldn't see them as much if it wasn't working in the media. And then, of course, you know, having kids that are coming through and playing the game, you know, so I'm coaching. I'm a parent, I'm driving around, I'm a cricket taxi. You know, that, that, you know, I couldn't be happier where I am right now. But in regards to the podcast, you know, what I do like, Andrew, which you, you're probably enjoying as well, is, you know, I'm controlling the content. Yep. And if we decide to go, you know, there's no problems if, if we go on a tangent, even though we've got a running sheet. And, and, and for us, I suppose with two ex-players, uh, we'll talk about the current issues, but... I think we want to be pretty story-based because I think cricket lends itself to, to good stories. Yeah, definitely. And um, when you've woken up, Hodgie, he's really good. Usually, uh, it looks <laughs> like, sounds like you've sort of woken him up from a nap to start a few shows. But it's the Bowlology Report. So listeners, if you haven't already subscribed, go and find it. Excellent podcast. All right, Damien, I want to take you back now down memory, la memory lane because... I was there for one of them, and I remember one very closely. Two of the most important overs in Australian international limited overs cricket. So I'll rewind to the 1996 <laughs> World Cup semi-final versus the West Indies. Australia were dead and buried, if I remember. Hardly put a big score on the border, like under 200. Australia were defending it against the West Indies, but you were given the... I guess not the honour, but the responsibility of bowling the last <laughs> over in that semi-finals with the game on the line. What do you remember about it? 
Oh, it's still very vivid when you look back at those sort of moments, and, and you're right. But going back a couple of years, I actually it was about my second or third game, and it was we didn't know it at the time, but it was Alan Border's last game for Australia in South Africa, 1994. And we needed to win the game to draw the series, and AB gave me the ball. They might have needed, needed six runs and only got four, and from that moment, I generally bowled the last over. For Australia, so you know, a couple of years later in a World Cup semi-final, it's obviously nervous, but it's not as if it's the first time I've done it before for Australia. You know, I've probably done it twenty or thirty times, and it was those, those two again. I think Brian Lara and Chanderpaul were just taking the game uh, away from us, and it was McGrath and Warren again that got together and started to knock them over and got down the last over. And Richie Richardson was on strike; he was smoking everywhere. The Curtly Ambrose was down the other end. And for whatever reason, Richie Rich hit me for four first ball, and uh, they only needed, I think, four runs. And for whatever reason, I yorked Richie Rich, and Curtly Ambrose called him through and to get himself on strike and ran himself out. It was unbelievable to remember. We used to do the warm-up out in the middle, us bowlers, and Ian Healy would take the ball, and he'd practice hitting the stumps, and they'd hit the stumps and go away for 20 metres, and he'd go, Healy, can you just throw the ball to me? But it just shows how professionally and Healy was. He was training for that one moment when he might have to hit the stumps. And guess what? It was a it was an actual World Cup semi-final. So to tick for Heels is application. And then there's no bigger competition in the world in the history of um, international cricket than bowling to an informed Courtney Walsh. Now, Courtney <laughs> was averaging, I think, two in this tournament. And we thought he'd actually blocked the ball and get down the other end, because Richie Richardson was obviously going to finish this game for him. And he tried to hit me out of the Mahali ground and got bowled first ball. And I remember Steve Waugh, you know, describing, you know, it was it's the quickest I've ever ran. And for some reason, I just had to run to Ian Healy and hug him. So teammates are flying by. I hugged Heels, I hugged Steve Waugh, and then I hugged Shane Lee, which was a great effort from Shane Lee, because he was 14th man. But he was actually the third man into the celebration, which uh, showed a fair bit about his pace. But, yeah, it was interesting. We felt like we got out of jail. We celebrated, as I said in my book, a bit like Prince, uh, like it was 1999. But, unfortunately, it was 96, and we had a final three days later in Pakistan. And didn't and, go so uh, well. No, and, and, and the thing that hurts me back from that, and Sri Lanka played so well. Arinda De Silva is one of the underrated international batsmen that's, that's played the game, but... We trained in the morning. We hadn't played in Pakistan before. Uh, we didn't train at night. And guess what happened? We batted first, bowled at night. And guess what? It gets dewy at night in Karachi. And just think, if we trained at night, the result might not have been a change. You know, it might have not have changed the result, but we, we might have possibly bowled first, you know, in the dry conditions mm. and then batted. But, um, but for world cricket, it, it sort of announced Sri Lanka onto the scene and they had their 20 year anniversary actually uh, this time last year and a singer, Guru Singer, lives around the corner from here and they had a celebration and, and he asked if I could MC the event and I thought that'd be great, I'd just rock up with my and shirt and, and I was actually Sri Lanka's fourth best player in that final so <laughs> it would have been nice to get some recognition. I've read your book and I think Mark Taylor gave you some pretty good support bowling that last over in the semi-final. Didn't he say to you, if you mess this up, you're out of the side? Something like that? Yeah, something on those lines. But the, but the ball before, he was brilliant. Like you, you could never get a more motivational captain than Mark Taylor and just said, you know, it doesn't matter what happens, uh, we're backing you here. And then after ball, he, he, he sort of questioned whether I was up to, up to the international standards of bowling at the last overs. But... <laughs> You know, for all we're talking about the captains at the moment, you know, with Joe Root and Stephen Smith, and they're both, you know, quite young guys. I mean, Mark Taylor, for me, he was just always in control of his emotions, chewing that chewing gum. He could have been having the worst day of his life. You wouldn't know it. And, you know, now you're retired, you don't want to lose what it's like to, to, to run in and bowl reasonably fast. It It, it is emotional. You are running in. You do get fatigued. It, it is an adrenaline type of event, for, particularly for cricket, and emotions can run high, but when you've got a calming captain, geez, it helps. Geez, it helps when you look at the captain, his emotions are in check, when you, you bowl a bad spell, there's no teacups like most captains, it was just, you know, thanks Flynn, that'll do you from Tubby, and, 
and you'd know yourself, I've got to bowl better to get another spell. And, that, and that's why, yeah, Mark Carlo, I reckon, is the best captain I played under. Yeah, it's a big rap. And then the next over was the World Cup semi final of 1999. A special over for me, Flem, because I was just over the boundary at point watching the game oh, wow. with a mate. And we came down to the fence. Just before the last over, we thought Australia have got this. Nine runs to win, nine down South Africa. Australia have got this. And then Lance Klusner bangs two fours off you in a row. And South Africa, the scores are level. And we think we're going to go back to Australia with losing semi-finalists as spectators. But what was it like in the middle? Because I can imagine, like, that was really like a star-studded Aussie lineup. You know, the War Brothers, Ponting, McGrath, Warren, Gilchrist, Lehman, yourself. I mean, that game... Probably one of the best one-day games ever. Yeah, it's a shame it wasn't a final. And we won the final just because we beat them the previous game. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, and you were there. When I say to people, that was, those first two fours were like streaky outside edges. Am I right to describe them like that? Uh, look, I may have had a couple of pints by this stage <laughs> of the day. But where, where I was sitting and I was at points, so the ball was sort of coming towards me. They came pretty quick. Yeah, no. I think the first one was the, the quickest recorded boundary ever hit, and then that was broken by the next ball, which was about a thousand miles an hour. But it was sort of funny in the middle. As I said again, if that had been the first time I bowled at the death, you know, that would have just, you know, blown me. But I, I like, if I had more than eight runs bowling in the last over, I felt like I could close out that game mm. and, and I wouldn't try and mix it up too much like I backed my Yorker. Yep. If there was less than that, I'd feel like I'd need to get a wicket here. So, you know, I'd have to bowl it, you know, that my slowy, yeah, possibly a, a quicker short ball, you know, just that we had to actually change it up. But anything more than eight runs, you know, I'd back myself to keep it pretty simple and close it out. The night before, we'd come up with a plan to come around the wicket and bowl Yorkers, you know, like a foot outside of stump, which you think about now, I didn't even get the chance to practice those, but we'd made this plan before a World Cup final. And we were back in that era where basically it was Yorkers to hit the stumps, they miss you hit. That was the mantra. So to have this plan, and you're not going to question it, are you, you know, in a World Cup semi and it's funny, a couple of hours before that, I, I was coming around the wicket and I yorked in three times in a road cruiser, that angling in. And I didn't think that was a bad ploy. But I remember after the third one going, if I get hit for four here, Steve Waugh's going to do his head in. So I threw it out wide and he thick-edged it for four. So it's funny how sometimes you know, you've just got to do what the team plan says. But after that second four, and it's funny, you know, I do a lot of public speaking these days about about that semi. It's the semi that keeps giving. And I throw a couple of one-liners in that might be uh, half fiction. But, but for me, as soon as you hit that second four, it's funny how your mind thinks. It was, I have to bowl him out now. That was my thought. It wasn't mm. about, we're going to lose this final or um, don't bowl a no ball or wide. I was just strong is I have to bowl him out now. And for all along, I actually wanted to come over the wicket and angle across him. Still yorking, but angle across him. I just felt like that was the best way to bowl to Klusner. So I said to Steve Waugh, um, mate, I want to come over. And this is and this is the beauty of Steve Waugh's leadership is he was a great captain as in he loved players who backed themselves and then he involved would actually back them. So... There would be no more crucial moments for Steve Waugh in his one-day career because the rumours are he, he sort of it was mentioned throughout that tournament when we were struggling. If we didn't win, he'd not only not be captain, he'd probably be out of the one-day team. So for him to go, no problem for me to come over the wicket was a real tick to his leadership and also you know his faith in, in one of his players. Yeah. So coming over the wicket, I felt a lot more comfortable coming over the wicket and obviously with the ring field. And then, the you know, the next ball where Darren Lehman, the current coach, got the chance to win the win the game, wasn't it? Or draw the game and get us in. And, and he misses the stumps from about two metres away. Like, we'd only been practising that about every session. And Dazza Lehman misses. And it's funny, when I'm walking back, I'm thinking, well, I hope that's not our last chance to win the World Cup. But it's interesting, when you talk to a lot of South Africans, they blame Alan Donald a lot, you know, for the run out. Whereas I don't recall Lance and, and Alan OAD talking after that near run out. They still had three balls left, didn't they? Mm. Now, if I was batting with Steve Wall or Bevo, 
you just bat the next two balls, and then it got down last ball, you run. So, you know, for the fourth ball, it was the best ball I bowled. You know, it was, it was the Yorker, what I was exactly looking to bowl. And I vividly remember Klusner just running and, and Klusner staying, uh, sorry, Donald's in his crease because I, there's a chance I can get the ball. And then Mark Warfield's beautifully as he did. He says he threw it to me. We all know he went for the stumps. He went for the glory stuff. And then I underarmed the ball to Paul Gilly. And it was going, like, it wasn't a quick underarm. It, it, it would have been going about a centimetre an hour. So Paul Gilly had to wait for ages for it to get to him. And and then he took the stunts. And that's the reason we play sport for. And I, you know, and I watch a lot of kids' sport these days. And just to watch that pure euphoria of, you know, winning or, or, or drawing in that case and going through the final was, um, you know, just a magic feeling. And, and for us, you know, you talk about the Australian team. Well, that South African team was one of the, the best South African teams as well. You know, there was no real chinks in that armour. But, you know, you still feel from this day, they haven't got over that South African in, in big tournaments, that every time it gets to a big moment, and probably only been recently that they've actually, you know, started to acknowledge that they have choked in big moments in, in, in white ball cricket. And I think once you acknowledge it, I reckon you can move on. But... But for us, and we, I felt at training, we were playing Pakistan at Lords. I felt at training, we were just going to win. It's almost like there's no situation we can't win from now. And as you said, we had a very good team. And then to be able to sing the song on the Lords pitch, Ricky Ponting leading it, well, that, that was the highlight of my career. Oh, great stuff. It was great for us, that semi-final, because me and my mate had been catching the National Express bus around, and there'd been a lot of very noisy South Africans giving it to us <laughs> the whole tournament. You know, we went into the Super Sixers game in trouble at Headingley, and then, you know, Steve War Century. So, after that semi-final, they were very quiet on the bus heading back <laughs> to London, and I was very happy well, about that. thing is, Andrew, it keeps giving, because I reckon you know, I have the opportunity to, to speak all around uh, Australia, you know, about <laughs> cricket stories, in particular that one. The amount of times, you know, there'll be 10 people a year that come up with a unique story, you know, like an Australian in a Cape Town bar. And they just gave me a hug. This is years ago going, after the first two fours, the whole pub was just giving it to me. And then when we got through, you know, like I was the only Australian in this bar <laughs> and and, it, and I was just pumped. And, and people saying they... They were running out of their courts, you know, afterwards. And, and neighbours were running out of their courts as well. So it says to me, you know, how much the Australian cricket team means to, to Australians and, and, and how sometimes it can give people a real lift in their lives. Yeah, definitely. And I was very, I count myself very lucky to have been at that game. <laughs> but I want, now I want to ask you another question. This is something about your test career. So fast forward to the 2001 Tour of India. Australia wins the first test. They go 16 tests in a row, yep. winning every game, 16 and zero. Yeah? Yeah. Things are going well. Things are going well. How did Steve Waugh break the news to you that you were dropped for the next test? I don't know, but, I mean, I'm, I'm a simple man. I'm a straight-down-the-line man. But when you win 16 tests and you lose the next one and you only make one one change, I mean, you know, Where's, it's pretty obvious where's the, account- the fact that where's you the accountability? There? Well, the thing is, Andrew, I didn't play another test after that, so my streak is still going. So you're 16 and 0. I'm still 16. Well, I played in 11 of them, I think. And I will honestly, I sat there with a the mate watching the Dravid and Laxman partnership, and I said to my yep. mate, maybe if Flemo had been in this team, he'd have just bowled one ball that swung a bit more and he could have broken the partnership. And we'll never know. But yeah, how did Steve Wall break it to you? Look, mate. We may be sixteen on the question. bounce, but see ya. I was I actually didn't bowl well um, in that first test, and, and we played around. And there's another one where the, the professionalism back then. I, you know, I, I wasn't the best bowler going around. I wasn't the fastest bowler, but I, I liked to back my skills. You know, ability to swing the ball and change the pace, and and, and I could bowl, cut it. And the day before that first test, I was bowling, playing around with cutters in the nets. And then, and then once again the night before, and we played two or tour games. In hindsight, I should have played around with them in the tour games a bit more. Um, we decided that if they got a big partnership, Colin Miller wasn't playing. He probably should have played all the three tests. Funky Cole, I would bowl. I'd come off an even shorter run and bowl cutters with Gilly up to the stumps. And I just remember thinking, maybe if we'd said this at the start of the tour, I could have had two tour games to work on it, but. It was actually in the second innings. We were all over them, and the ball started to swing normal again. 
and people will come up and go, how about we go with the, the, the cutters? And I wish I'd just said, mate, the ball's starting to swing again. I, I, I you know, should do that. So I went with the cutters and the last, what would have been my last test wicket was the one when um, I dropped short and Dravid hit it to Michael Slater and Slats took the catch and they said that it, it hit the ground first. So and Slats, he flew off the handle. Went off the handle a bit and I'm thinking, hey, what about me? I'm the one that could have had another wicket there. <laughs> That was funny watching some footage later on and we come straight out of one day as in, in Australia and in one day cricket I used to you know, bowl close to stumps for swingers and then when it what stopped swinging, which was pretty early in one day cricket, I'd bowl wide of the crease to angle in and change my pace because I didn't want to get cut. I'd rather than take a chance of trying to play the pull shot with two out because if you gave room for a cut shot to international players, it was four. Looked at some footage and just saw how wide I was bowling in the crease now, if we just had a bowling coach or someone had mentioned, yeah, maybe that would have got me going in the test match. But I can't actually remember who told me I wasn't playing. But obviously you're disappointed considering that we won the last test in 16 in a row. But deep down, I knew I hadn't bowled at my best, but, you know, a new test match. And watching the footage, I thought, well, I'll get in close to stumps. But I must admit, I was 12th man, disappointed. And then I think once the boys had been in the field for about two and a half days, and I was running the drinks out to him. I caught a, a glimpse of myself in the mirror and I looked at myself <laughs> and I went, I reckon it's a pretty good one to miss, Fleet. Pretty bro. good one to miss. But yeah, felt for the boys. But it's interesting, you know, the two series that we lost, two of the that are recalled as the two greatest series of all time, are, you know, 2005 Ashes and 2001, you know, Indian, Indian series. So sometimes it just shows where Australia's held in what sort of steam around the world is, you know, in some of our close losses. Yeah, they're called the greatest test series of all time. And you were part of it. Now, last question, Flem, before I let you go. I know you're commentating at the Wacker for Macquarie Media. How could England win this match? If they were to win it, what do they have to do right? Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, for two or three days of both test matches, or probably more of Brisbane, they've been competitive um, for three days in one session up at um, the Gabba. And then really they owned day four, even late day three for the Australians. But the thing is, they've got to be able to compete for the five days. And for me, they've got to turn... So there's only been 200s in this series, one each test match by an Australian and we've won the test match. So, you know, nice 40s and 30s, the odd 50 is not enough. So I think Root um, has to score big. Bairstow has to move up the order. He looks the guy most likely to score 100 so they've got to actually put scoreboard pressure on the Australians. And the thing that I reckon England have struggled with is they're bowling what we would call probably as an Australian length on non-swinging pitches. If they've got to go back to pitching the ball up like they do over in England because the only time they've really done it over a sustained period was you know, late on day three when James Anderson did it at night and Wokes actually looked more dangerous when he bowled full. So... Root has to score hundreds, Bearstow up the order, and and their quicks have just got to bowl fuller. And at the Wacker, who knows what we get. If the pitch has got a little bit of grass on it, they've got the bowlers to actually maximise those conditions. But if, if I'm the Australians, deep, you know, Stephen Smith, deep in his mind, he knows that his, his four bowlers are all genuine match winners. And someone like Patrick Cummins, who hasn't you know, got a five for yet, he hasn't scored a 50... What what worries me for England, this could be the test match where he actually blasts England out and, and, and takes five or six for here. So, Australians are the favourites, but I reckon there's been moments and England need to make the most of that. There's times where they've won sessions, they've won days. Um, unfortunately, they haven't been able to do it over five-day period. You were the king of swing. Is it really much harder to swing the Kookaburra ball compared to the Duke ball? Not the early one. Sometimes the Duke doesn't swing in the first few overs till it gets rid of that lacquer. So you, you wait until it starts to go, then you get the buffer up, and then you pitch up. But you know, swing bowling when the ball's swinging, um, it's like when they lost, they won the toss and bowl first. They really didn't back root up. Those first fifteen overs were short of the length. Now they might be saying, "Oh, the ball's not swinging here," but it's a vicious circle. If you don't bowl full enough to find out whether it's swinging. Well, you're never know, going to know whether it swings. So, yeah, I, I've been really surprised at the, how short they've bowled. And the, the red cooker will swing. It will swing if you pitch up. Now, it might be only 10 overs, might be only 15. But if you can get a straight three down in that period, 
or happy days. And don't worry about getting cover-driven. If you're playing cover drives, as we've seen with James Mintz, who likes to play the cover drive, got away with it in the slow gabba pitch in the first innings. Every innings after that, he's looking to, to punch through the covers on front or back foot, and he's got out before he's got the double figures. So I'd be encouraging the cover drive and swing the ball. The red cooker will swing at, the, at Perth. Well, Flemo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Fascinating stuff. A great trip down memory lane. And I guess all the listeners, they can find you on your podcast, The Biology Report. The Big Bash is kicking off soon, which I'm sure you're excited about. So, yeah, you'll be all over summer. Andrew, thanks a lot for that. And go Aussies. Isn't Flemo a good bloke? Yeah, he's a great interview, man. It's really funny, and you know, I think he was—he's always sort of been one of my favourite cricketers. So I really enjoyed that, mate. And it was good for us because when I said we were, it was you and me, yeah, that's on the confession. point boundary. Mm, I want to make at that yeah. uh, South African game in the '99 World Cup. So it was good to hear the other side. Yeah, of Yeah, I mean, you know, like I—I I, I he was probably more sober well, than we were. Well, yeah, well, probably like him. It's still, I still, you know, when listening to that, it's just so vivid, and what really was like that for us as well. Kluzner was just slapping fours like they were, you know, missiles, like me. Meteorites, wasn't he? It was just an incredible game. All right, let's get into the cricket headlines for the week. The Women's Big Bash League has kicked off to huge success at North Sydney Oval on the weekend. Big crowds and amazing TV ratings. And these are the, the sort of staggering results from the weekend is how many people watched it on Saturday night. So they had a peak audience of 629,000 people watching the Women's Big Bash on Saturday night. Compare that to the A-League derby between Sydney FC and the Western Sydney Wanderers. It had just over 120,000. And the Women's Big Bash League has dwarfed a men's sport. I mean, it really is a landmark day. A fantastic story and, you know, a great competition that's sort of, yeah, growing year on year and doesn't show any signs of sort of holding in that. I do just want to pick you up on one thing. Are you going to be fining yourself for mentioning uh, football on this podcast, even though it was in uh, reference to uh, uh, beating them for the scores? <laughs> I know you don't like other, other sports being talked about on this podcast. I've refrained this to mention in, rugby league a number of times this is today. In no way... <laughs> A bad use of another. Like I'm putting the sport down. But Ben, ben Horn's on a warning, is he? Or? Ben Horn, fine. He's brought in the North. It's not like I talked about the North Sydney Bears in this one. Sorry, man, is that, 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 we just saw some records on the weekend. They had the highest Big Bash team score ever, men's or women's, 242. They had the highest individual women's Big Bash league score. They had the fastest ever women's Big Bash century, Ash Gardner, 114 off 52 balls. So, amazing weekend. And if the ratings continue like this, it will add value to the TV rights negotiations that are, that are kicking off soon. Well, man, is it, and it wasn't a massive crowd by any means at North Sydney Over, but it just looked fantastic on the TV. It really was entertaining. It was, you know, you've got to give a lot of credit to Cricket Australia. They've scheduled it that weekend when there's not much else on. I mean, obviously the derby was on, but there's, you know, there's, there was a lull there and in between tests, obviously, and they just absolutely killed it. I've written a piece this week for news.com.au about the crowd safety at these games. and I think the balls are travelling so hard, even when the women are hitting them, that you've got to look at netting in these smaller grounds. We had one young boy get hit square on the face from an Elise Perry six on Saturday night. So I think uh, safety is one issue that's going to be a big thing for the big bash moving forward. Yeah, of course, man. So I think that's that's definitely something. I mean, that we, you know, you do have it in some other sports, those sort of uh, safety precautions for spectators. So, I mean, I, I know you've been to a few um, of these women cricket games this summer. One of the points of view I've seen espouse is that, 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 that in women's cricket, that batting has improved immeasurably, but it's the bowling that's still fallen a bit behind. Is is that? Do you think that's fair enough? I don't know about that. The, the games that I've watched, it seems to be a sort of very decent contest between bat and ball, actually, even in the sort of short-form games where it's, you know, a slogger's paradise quite often. Mm. Uh, no, I, I, I think there's a sort of healthy healthy balance there. I think the, the, the issue with the safety and, and the, the big sixes is they are playing on pretty small grounds. I mean, the North Sydney Oval is one of my favourite grounds in the country. It's a beautiful place to watch cricket, but you are in the line of fire when, when these top athletes are just mm. uh, unfurling their big shots. So, yeah, maybe netting or something like that. Uh, is, is an answer. In good news for Afghanistan, it has been announced that they will play their first test against India next year. Uh, just great to see another test team come in. And yeah. uh, the, the big interest is about the young leg spinner Rashid Khan. He's the leading player for Afghanistan and is playing for the Adelaide Strikers this summer in the Big Bash. And I can tell you right now, if he was Australian, he would walk straight into our test side. So he, he is an, a find and I 
guarantee he will make some headway in the big bash, Rashid Khan. But there's been a new development in cricket, you turn. I don't know if you've seen this. A T10 <laughs> tournament kicks off in Sharjah this weekend. That's it. Ten overs per side. It's a weekend comp, like a round-robin comp. Uh, like, there's great players. Like Owen Morgan, Kumar Sangakara, Darren Bravo. So what do you think of the idea of T10? Ten per side. Game's finished in an hour and a half. Yeah, well, I mean, where, where does it start? We go to T5, T2, T1. I'm not against it per se. You know, if you've got those great players and you can put it all into one weekend, it'd be a, it'd be a fun weekend to go to. But, uh, yeah, I, I think we're sort of running out of margins for reducing the sport uh, down to something that a little bit of a farce when it gets small. Because Do you need 11 players if it's a T10? Well, what was it? was Super Sixes, I think they played for a while in Singapore or at the yeah, Commonwealth Com- Games, yeah, wasn't it? Com- yeah, I... You get to the stage when you completely dilute the sport, don't you? The, the contest between bat and ball or a, any meaningful contest, don't you? When you start to really what sort of skin it down. What sort of would a T10 game mm. have? None whatsoever, yeah. It would just be... It's just to throw your bat at every ball. Yeah. Yeah. We were the same about yeah. T20 cricket maybe when we first heard about it. So I guess we shouldn't be... Like too a, quick. Like we a, need to see it. Yeah, like I say, yeah, I'm not going to condemn it until I've yeah spent a weekend somewhere. Yeah, if it is in Singapore, you get the Saturday, Sunday in Singapore, and you see some legends of the game swinging the bat. That that could be quite enjoyable. But I'm 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 sceptical. I think doesn't seem too meaningful. I guess that's the the. Slide We're always looking it. for meaning on this <laughs> podcast <laughs> yeah, too, yeah. aren't we? Just, just, just in mm. life in general. Now yeah. the last headline this week, and this is something that's touched me personally. Matthew Engel from the Guardian has done what's been called a hatchet job on Jeff Boycott's commentary. So he's written a scathing criticism of Jeff Boycott. This said that he's basically, what's too self-involved. What are some of the other things Engel said about Boycott? Uh, I think he's... It, it intimates you're downright bored, didn't he, Menas? I mean, talks too much. Well, we we don't get this commentary, you know, in Australia. But sometimes the same things are levelled at commentators on the Channel Nine team, and I think social media opens the way these days for those sort of ugly criticisms. But you know, that, that was a I thought. A, Steve, a well thought, a well put together piece, you know, and I and there was some balance to it. Yeah, but there this was. Angle would be great on the podcast. Mm. Get him in for the commentary critique segment. <laughs> <laughs> my my thing is, I was disappointed that I didn't write a <laughs> job for <laughs> someone <laughs> first. I mean, who, like who? it's absolutely made for me. The the, the problem the problem with with boycott and and there coming. are there are others who sort of you know fall into this character. He's been doing it for so long, and he has such a sort of pronounced way of doing it you could do a decent imitation of it that he has a certain speech patterns and he's always negative he's always angry and oh my wife could have hit that my you know this that and the other and so he's almost become like a parody or a caricature of himself so that's why it, it sort of it loses any meaning once he just becomes this you know he's not commentating he's just playing Jeffrey Boycott in the Test Match special box sort of thing. So I, I thought it was very good and it's a very smart piece of writing uh, and I agree with a lot of it. But I do I did grow up coming from the UK listening to, to a lot of uh, radio commentary with Boycott involved in certain places. So I still have a small part in my heart for him. But uh, yeah, it, it, he's just become this cartoon character now of a, of a commentator. Well, Engels inspired me. That's the main thing from, <laughs> from that piece. All right, so that's it for headlines. Now, I have a special guest for this week's commentary critique segment. I had a chat with a veteran commentator from the Australian cricket scene, Tim Lane. So quick break, and then I'll be back with the commentary critique segment with Tim Lane. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp cricket podcast. I have got on the line a very special guest to help me with the commentary critique segment, one of the great voices in Australian cricket, Tim Lane. Hi, Tim. How are you? G'day, Andrew. I'm well and uh, good to be with you and looking forward to uh, a bit more cricket and a bit more broadcasting in Perth in a couple of days. Yeah, so you've been covering the Ashes for the Macquarie Radio Network. How's that been going? Have you enjoyed the cricket so far? I have, yeah. I've enjoyed the cricket. I've enjoyed the commentary box. We've been doing it on Macquarie now since the last Ashes series. Uh, So we've basically done a full cycle of uh, Australian um, international series in this country. And uh, it's been great to be back in it after uh, a number of years out of it since uh, I left the ABC back at the end of 2002-03. So I was um, thinking that this summer there's actually quite a lot of competition in the coverage on the radio of cricket. There's probably three local networks 
covering the cricket. Do you guys feel that sense of competitiveness between the networks? Well, inevitably, there's a there's a certain edge of that, but it's it's not all about that by any stretch of the imagination. As for how it came about, I think Cricket Australia were aggressively pursuing um, exercises that would, they hoped, expand their reach. And I'd imagine uh, they might have had some success in that regard. I think we came on board, as I say, uh, four or five years ago now. And um, in the last couple of years, Triple M has come on board as well, which takes cricket to the FM band and perhaps um, puts it in a direction where maybe more young people might be inclined to give it a try on FM radio. Um, I'm not sure, you know, how all that plays out in the end because I'd have thought young people probably, if they want to listen to the cricket, uh, they go where they know uh, they'll find it. Uh, and even if they don't know, they've only got to ask somebody. But nevertheless, you know, doing things which uh, expand your reach probably do make uh, good marketing sense to Cricket Australia. Yeah, what about the Macquarie Network? I guess what's your sort of philosophy behind the cricket coverage? What sort of style are you striving for? Do you have a sort of uh, principle or a guiding idea of how you should cover the Test cricket? Well, I think there's got to be some point of difference. Not that we necessarily pursue that in a way uh, designed to shove it down people's throats, but we, we use two expert commentators throughout. We also have ads at the end of each over, so that makes it all pretty tight. And so I think what you do get is a is a tight package where there's lots of content with you know excellent excellent commentators and Macquarie have been outstanding in their preparedness to uh, go after the best so I think of, of those available bearing in mind that many have uh, commitments that rule them out through television and so on. Uh, we have a, a terrific team of expert commentators and Bruce Eber and I call the action. We sort of try and keep our role pretty short and sharp but nevertheless there is room for observation and comment but in the main it's probably more of a an expert commentator-oriented coverage uh, than the traditional one, which uh, I guess began in England a long time ago and, you know, involves the musings and reflections so on of the, of the commentator. And back in the old days, it was just uh, the commentator calling all the action until the end of the over and then the expert would come in and give a bit of a summation of what happened over the previous six or eight balls and then the commentator would start all over again. Well, things have changed since then, but we've probably taken it all a step further. It's a great team you've got at Macquarie. So Glenn McGrath, Mike Hussey, Damien Fleming, any of those experts you particularly like working with? Oh, look, I wouldn't single anybody out because um, the rest might give me a hard time after they listen to this and we all arrive in the commentary box in Perth. But you're right, uh, John Embry's in there as well as a regular and has been over uh, four summers for us, particularly in an Ashes summer. It is important because it's 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 giving us an English connection and that is important because we're telling the story from both sides but uh, look I suppose if I did um single someone out it's probably Chappelle who I you know we're we're in the same age band although uh he's a bit older than I am but nevertheless we cover uh, a lot of the same history of the game and we both have a tremendous affection and you know pretty good memory for all that's gone before and he is just such an important figure in Australian cricket. He, he long has been, but I think with time that only becomes underlined because in many ways he, more than any other individual, particularly with Richie's passing a couple of years ago, Ciappelli personifies the corporate memory of Australian cricket, both uh, on the field and off it, but particularly on it. And even when he wasn't playing, when he was a kid, you know, he was he was so immersed in it all. Um, his grandfather, Vic Richardson, of course, was a great figure in Australian cricket. And so Ciappelli was learning at his hip from a very young age and just knows so much about it all. And uh, whether you agree with him or not, his, his interpretations um, of things through the years are, are really valuable to the, to the game. Uh, and I think, you know, people like that through the generations are, are really important. Yeah, he's got a great radio style, actually, Ciappelli. You know, I really enjoy listening to him on the radio. Um, you mentioned John Embry. So, this, you know, during your coverage, John Embry said that he thought Australia are a common denominator when problems happen on the field. Uh, what do you think? You've seen a lot of cricket. Do you think Australians are a common denominator? Well, I mean, I don't see every series 
between you know various nations of the cricketing world. But in reflecting on that comment, um, it's interesting to ponder where the word sledging came from, and it uh, you know it stemmed actually from the Chapelli era. Uh, as a bit of a joke among the players, uh, and I think it related to something that had happened off the field when uh, someone had, oh, I can't recall what it was, made a comment or behaved in some way that was particularly unsubtle. Someone referred to it as being as subtle as a sledgehammer, mm-hmm. and thus uh, the, the, the verb to sledge was born. And it wasn't long before it carried over onto the field and, and, and achieved a new usage and um, descriptive form. And thus it is today that, you know, I think it's even in the dictionary, isn't it, these days? And, um, it's in my dictionary. People who don't follow cricket are familiar with the word sledging. And so it is, it is an Australian word and, you know, born of a fact and a time when perhaps that kind of rebellious style on the field was being propagated. And um, today, you know, it's almost taken for granted that when Australia and England play there will be bitter exchanges and um, some of it, you know, I think is, is, is not unreasonable and it kind of fires the interest of particularly younger people. But um, I think when it does become predictable and, you know, occurs in every game as a matter of course and, you know, when series begin with players talking about war and hatred, well, you, you really have to wonder where it's all going. Certainly comes to the fore when we play England more than anyone else. I think they have this agenda. Yeah, although we've got India next summer and don't expect that to be entirely peaceful either. No, but they don't complain as much. Perhaps not, although I think they do. They've probably become used to it now. You see, I I think a lot of this stems from our contact football culture and perhaps we see, you know, within the contact battle, you know, physical contest, players get hurt, uh, they respond to that. And so, I don't know, in physical combative terms, Australians perhaps are just a little more inclined to feel that it's okay to uh, to do this and this is the way sport is played, where I think players from other countries don't necessarily see it that way. And I can imagine that some who have come to Australia and been worked over uh, have been shocked. And so this has ramifications, not just in terms of the cricket contest that we're watching, but, you know, in a view of Australia that is taken by people who come here from other countries. Mm. Maybe we're just better at it than other countries. Well, I think we're, 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 we're less coy about it. We, we get in there and it's not something, you know, I don't think we've questioned all that vigorously over the years. Someone was remarking to me during the Adelaide Test about having played cricket in England and, and how an early impression was of how quiet it was, that this was not the highest level. This was a, a, in a lower form of, um, of execution of the game. And, uh, you know, the, the, the cricket field was a, a quiet, peaceful place. Whereas in Australia, those who are still playing the game at various competitive levels tell me that, you know, it's, it's anything but that virtually at all levels of the game. And certainly what kids see, and I, you know, I know that from my own experience, that uh, when I was playing a bit of regular competitive cricket in the early 1970s and this sort of thing was becoming the norm, uh, I was influenced by that. And I do recall a game or two where I said, did things that I don't feel particularly proud of when I reflect. Yeah, I uh, played cricket in England and Australia when I was younger. And yeah, I, I, I definitely copped it more in Australia. It was a lot more just F off from the bowler. Uh, whereas in England, they tried to make jokes to put you off your game. And they certainly sledge over there. But look, I want to let you go. But before I do, I want to ask you one question. Can England come back into the series at the Wacker um, next week? I doubt it very much. Uh, the fact that it's at the Wacker, if it's got any pace and bounce, won't help. But uh, I think our bowling attack is just too powerful for their batting lineup, and they've come here with a, an unproven batting lineup. And uh, of their two mainstays, Cook and Root, Cook, you know, is now really seriously having his future questioned. It must be hard when you've done all that he has played for as long as he has, and I think too when you hand over the reins of leadership, when your career has actually gone into some sort of sort of climb over the top of a hill. Uh, and you're, you're, you've started riding into the sunset and uh, you're not the same hungry, ambitious cricketer that you were when you were on the way up. So, I mean, that's just about 
Alistair Cook and people who experienced that syndrome, mm. you know, with three players in the top six who came here never having scored a test century between them, they really are thin on the ground. And we have a very, very good attack right now. And uh, I think it's only going to get better unless the dreaded curse of injury starts to rear its ugly head. It's great news. So you're expecting we will regain the Ashes at the Wacker and you never know, you might be calling it. You never know. You never know. We, um, of course, began 2013-14 not really expected to win or not expected to win easily. And yet by Perth, uh, it was all wrapped up. It was 3-0 and we might well be in the same situation. I guess all the tickets have been um, booked up for Melbourne and Sydney, but it is really disappointing that the two biggest draw cards might well again be uh, dead rubbers. And that's something for Cricket Australia to have a a think about. Uh, uh, You know, we we sort of have this template these days, which isn't likely to be tampered with because it's comfortable and, you know, the administration wants to preserve so much room now for the shortest form of the game and that starts to get into well very much in a full swing into the new year but uh, I think it's a great pity that the summer of cricket is all over by you know about 10 days into January each year now and and that you can have series like this that are decided well before Christmas and that the two grounds that I was going to say draw the biggest crowds but Adelaide actually draws the second biggest crowd now the two biggest cities in the country and, you know, all the people who are planning on going to the test matches there won't see games that are relevant to the outcome of the series. It's funny, though, that you say it's the cricket story sticks to this schedule. You know, next summer, all the talk is that India are throwing a massive spanner in the works so they won't come out as early as England have come out. And we might see actually a Boxing Day and a New Year's test that do have some meaning against India. So, um, you know, India makes a call and Australia jumps. Yes, well, I'm not sure how that's going to play out, but I am encouraged by the fact that there's talk of a couple of test matches being played further into January because Sri Lanka will be coming as well. And uh, as one who fondly recalls Australia Day weekends at the Adelaide Oval and times when uh, we went back to school and you had the last test of a series, sometimes the deciding test of a rubber, such as when the West Indies were here in 6061. Um, they're fond memories, and it truly was a, a summer of Test cricket in those days. Uh, I don't imagine it's going to be on a regular basis, but if there is Test cricket right through January next year, I think that'd be really good. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time and coming on the podcast. It was a real pleasure to have one of the great commentators in the country on the show. So good luck for the rest of the summer, and we'll catch up with you on the radio. Thanks, Andrew. Pleasure to talk to you. Well, that's it for the podcast this week. Thanks for coming in, Steve, and suffering through our jokes. Yeah, more than happy. Uh, yeah, looking forward to the ratcheting it up when it goes four and five. Thank you. And Macca, thanks for coming back on the show. It's been a pleasure, mate. Bottoms up, Steve. <laughs> and remember, listeners, we will be back with daily Ashes reports during the Wacker Test. The Big Bash kicks off next week in Sydney, uh, Thunder v the Sixers. So the cricket season is ramping up full time now. And we'll be back next week with another podcast. <laughs>